You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 298 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are diving down the rabbit hole of occultism, alchemy, angels and mysticism. Legendary actor Christopher Lee, you know the one who played Dracula, Saruman and Count Dooku in Star Wars? Well, he had this to say about the occult. I have met people who claimed to be Satanists, who claimed to be involved with black magic, who claimed that they not only knew a lot about it, but as I said, I've certainly never been involved and I warn all of you. Never, never, never. You will not only lose your mind, you lose your soul. Oh, what a cunt. Oh, what a cunt. Everyone still here? Still listening? Good. Then let's proceed. Enosh, or Enoch. I think I'm going to say Enoch. I'm not sure that's the correct pronunciation, but... I'm going with Enoch. Enoch is a biblical figure prior to Noah's flood and he's the son of Jared and the father of Methuselah. And this Enoch is not to be confused with Cain's son Enoch. He's another one. Uh, The text of the book of Genesis says that Enoch lived 365 years before he was taken by God. The text reads that Enoch walked with God and he was no more for God took him which could be interpreted as Enoch entering heaven alive. Sir Edward Kelly was an English Renaissance occultist and self-declared spirit medium. He is best known for working with legendary alchemist John Dee in his magical investigations. Besides the professed ability to summon spirits or angels in a shoestone or in a mirror, Kelly also claimed to possess the secret of transmuting base metals into gold, which is the goal of alchemy, as well as producing the Philosopher's Stone itself, which you need to transmute metals into gold. And you know, alchemy is not really about that, but that's another topic for another episode, and I've already done episodes about that. This episode is more going to be about Kelly's Shoestone or Mirrors. I I got a black mirror myself, actually, but I haven't scryed into it yet, Uh, but uh, one day maybe. Anyway, the the angels that Kelly communicated with did so in a special language that was termed angelic and subsequently was called Enochian, which he then relayed to John Dee. Some modern cryptographers argued that Kelly invented this language. The angelic language, the Enochian language, was supposedly dictated by angels whom Kelly claimed to see within a crystal ball or a mirror. 
the essence of the Nokian system depends on the utilization of 18 calls or keys in the Nokian language. A series of rhetorical exhortations which functions as evocations. Or, you know, like calls. Catcalling. <laughs> He's catcalling the angels. Um, so there's 18 of those and a 19th key known as the call or key of the 13 ethers. The calls are used to enter the various ethers in visionary states. Ethers are one of a succession of worlds or planes viewed as surrounding, penetrating and extending beyond the material world. The ethers are conceived of as forming a map of the entire universe in the form of concentric rings which expand outward from the innermost to the outermost ether. Like rings on, on the water when you throw a rock in. Like that. I want to read to you now the first call. I reign over you, said the God of justice, in power exalted above the firmaments of wrath, in whose hands the sun is as a sword, and the moon as a through-thrusting fire, which me measureth your garments in the midst of my vestures, and trust you together as the palms of my hands, whose seats I garnished with the fire of gathering, and which beautified your garments with admiration, to whom I made a law to govern the holy ones, and which delivered you a rod with the ark of knowledge. Moreover, you lifted up your voices and swear obedience and faith to him that liveth and triumpheth, whose beginning is not, nor end cannot be, which shineth in the midst of your palace, and amongst you as the balance of righteousness and truth. Move therefore and show yourselves, open the mysteries of your creation, be friendly unto me, for I am the servant of the same, your God, the true worshipper of the highest. Enochian magic is heavy. A lot of people think of angels as these little cute little creatures, but the truth is they are terrifying. They are supposed to be hundreds of feet tall with glowing eyes and sword in hand. Not to say that they are evil, no. They're divine, just incredibly powerful beyond anything we have known. So beware before you call them and I just I just did call them. Uh, so <laughs> I hope they don't turn up. What the fuck? Oh. <clears throat> Anyway, John Dee, the alchemist that worked with Edward Kelly, he considered the, the dictation of angelic material highly important for three reasons. First, he believed the angelic represented a documentable case of true glossolalia, thereby proving that Kelly was actually speaking with angels and it was not from his imagination. Second, the angels claimed that their language was actually the original prototype of Hebrew, the language with which God spoke to Adam and thus the first human word. Third, the angelic material takes the form of a set of conjurations that would summon an extremely powerful set of angelic beings who would reveal many secrets to those who sought them, especially the key to the Philosopher's Stone, to godlike wisdom and eternal life. But let's rewind the clock back a bit and see what history tells us before Edward Kelly walked 
into the scene. I'm going to play a 10-minute excerpt from an interview I did with author P.D. Newman where he talks about alchemy, psychedelics, but especially about Edward Kelly. If you want to listen to the complete episode, it's episode 290, Angels in Vermilion. It wasn't that long ago, but I think this 10-minute this excerpt needs to be played in this episode as well. You know, the, the earliest references to the Philosopher's Stone come from um, Apollonius of Tiana, who was a Neoplatonist, um, and then from Zosimos of Panopolis. And that goes, you know, all the way back to ancient ancient Egypt, uh, um, the you know, first to the third, fourth centuries, they're about... <coughs> I guess I should say ancient um, Greece and Rome, but um, but this particular application of it, like I said, there are multiple alchemies, <clears throat> and it's clear when, like for example, Zosimos is referring to the philosopher's stone and what it is. It, it, it's clear that it has to do with tincturing metals, actually dying metals, because he was a um, an Egyptian priest and his sole concern was the dying of statuaries um, to make them divine. They had a tradition of animating statues and the way this was done um, principally was by giving it an anima, a spirit. And each of those spirits that these statues were imbued with, the way that they gave it that, um, that power was by making it a fit receptacle for those powers. So specific colors and metals related to particular deities, particular forms, if you want to look at it that way. So Sosimos's concern was very practical. He's trying to dye metals for the purpose of making them fit receptacles for certain um, divine energies. But that that's you know that's metals that's what they call the uh, dry path in alchemy we don't really get to plant alchemy until much later in and around um <clears throat> Lully's rediscovery of alcohol distillation which made plant extraction essence extraction possible and then later with Paracelsus's um, invention of spagyrica of plant spagyric alchemy um, which got even further into techniques by which alkaloids could be extracted from plants. Um, so it isn't after, you know, it isn't after alchemy made these evolutions and these leaps and became what it became by the time it made its way into medieval Europe uh, that it started to take the form of even being interested in plants. And when you look at, for example, Falconelli's second book, Dwellings of the Philosophers, he gives a long <clears throat> genealogy of the Philosopher's Stone, tracing all the references to it <clears throat> that he was able to find, not not um, not not elusive references, but references by people who claim to have made it or encountered it themselves. And these references all begin and point to Edward Kelly. And the reason being is because Edward Kelly, um, John Dee's scryer, seer, the one who was actually able to see the angels because Dee himself wasn't, uh, he was in possession of this red powder. There's a lot of confusion about what this powder is, how he acquired it. 
um, there's he, there's different tales that he told different people, but the the basic conclusion and the one that Falconelli repeats is that he this ultimately this powder came from the grave of a rich Catholic bishop, um, and that bishop was Saint Dunstan, um, Dunstan of Canterbury, and he claimed to have acquired this powder from his grave believing it to be the Philosopher's Stone. And it's never ex said explicitly in anywhere in D that that powder was being used to see the angels. But that's not the point. The point is that D's biographer, Elias Ashmole, who was one of the founders of the Royal Society and one of the first speculative Freemasons, he believed that that powder was responsible for D's for Kelly's ability to see those angels. <clears throat> so that's really where it really starts with Ashmole and Boyle in the Royal Society, where we can point our finger, finger and say, we know what's going on now, but we go, we point back to D because that's who um, Ashmole was trying that D and Kelly's activities was what he was trying to reproduce when he started investigating um, psychedelics in the Royal Society. We know that to this day, St. Dunstan is the saint patron of alchemy in Prague because of Kelly's position there, because of his interest in Dunstan and believe, belief that Dunstan was the source of that powder. Whether or not he was, we, we can't prove, but... Kelly certainly made it appear as though it came from Dunstan. And he, there may have been many reasons for him to want to tie it back to Dunstan. <clears throat> um, Dunstan was a, a practicing alchemist, at least a blacksmith, but believed to have been an alchemist. And uh, was, before he became a monk, was known to have been... Um, sort of loose with his behavior. He liked to drink and he was popular with the ladies and was very reluctant to even become a monk because he liked those activities so much. But when he did, even after he did it, he was subject to visions um, in his chambers, private chambers. He repeatedly saw visions of the devil in his chambers. So he's directly connected to alchemy, visionary experience, and um, an intoxication, um, to be blatant about it, directly connected to being just getting high and drinking. So it, any one of those three or all three of those reasons would have been sufficient, I think, for Kelly to want to link this powder up with Dunstan. He wrote uh, Sir Edward Kelly's work, um, a poem that was published in um, Ashmole's um, Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum is where it's published. Uh, he wrote that, and he also is alleged to have, he has a personal seal that he's alleged to have um, drawn himself. His ears were cropped, for example, for some reason, which was a punishment in those days. And we know that he had been pilloried <laughs> for the crime of coining, which was uh, making fraudulent coins um and fraudulent metals you know not passing off uh, gold or silver as though they were gold or silver when they were actually lesser metals so we know that he was involved in some 
shysty activity. Um, but it's also pretty clear that once he, you know, tracked D down and cause you know, he, he tracked D down trying to get D to help him decipher that manuscript. But, uh, once he got in D's employ, it's pretty clear from the diaries that that's the last place he wanted to be. He, uh, it's often said that he was, you know, sort of tricking D and he, he may have been on some level, but it's pretty clear from the diaries that he was not enjoying his experience. Yeah. He wasn't happy scrying at all. And you can see it in the diaries that, uh, you know, he, he, he protests over and over. He does not like sitting here with D for hours and hours talking, trying to talk to these angels. And when really D's sole concern is, is spying and, and acquiring gold plenty of examples of entheogenic compounds being used within alchemy. Uh, there's entire sections on it in Chris Bennett's book, Libra 420, um, where he points at the use of you know, opium and hashish and nightshades. And uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. The real point of this connection is that Ashmole and Boyle believed that it was a drug, and they believed that Kelly was using it to have those visions. Um, and that belief sp spawned an entire um, venture of research into hallucinogenic drugs by the early Royal Society. And we know this because in 2010, the Royal Society put on display um, this document called Boyle's wish list, which was a list of items Robert Boyle wanted to acquire for the society to study. And this thing is full of drugs. He's wanting to acquire um, hashish. He mentions a, a mushroom that he wants to acquire that was mentioned by a French author. He wants drugs that cause epileptic fits, pleasing dreams and visions. Um, and then he, he just na namely hallucinogenic drugs he says he's looking for and then in addition to that we know that robert hook who was uh in charge of experiments in the royal society delivered at least two papers on on the psychological effects of hashish so they were they were just studying what we would call you know the scientific method they were very interested in um, hashish mushrooms and the reason they were interested in this is because and they and it's specifically stated by Boyle it's because he, he is convinced that it must be a drug he says that how is it that an incorporeal substance like this red powder can cause communication uh, excuse me he says how it is how is it that a corporal substance like this red powder can cause communication with incorporeal entities like angels and they, they say it must be a drug and that spawns this entire investigation into psychedelics that leads eventually to the injection of the acacia into freemasonry um acacia being one of the things they're investigating we know that they knew about it because it was in um, Christopher Columbus's report um, when he documented Yopo use among the natives when he came through South America. And Humboldt later identified the tree that those natives were using. It's actually an Adenanthera called Ubrina. Um, but Humboldt identified it as Acacia Neopo. 
So these people were under the impression that what the natives were snuffing, the Yanomamo were snuffing as apina or yopo powder, was an acacia species. And it was these people who were investigating this, one of them being um, a man named John Theophilus de Sagulier, who, in addition to being research assistant to Sir Isaac Newton in the Royal Society, another practicing alchemist, was the third grandmaster of the premier Grand Lodge in London. And it was he who put the acacia in Masonic ritual prior to his stint as grandmaster. There is no acacia in Masonic ritual. There's only a mention of cassia, which is a cinnamon-like plant from southern China. Um, actually has no business in a Masonic ritual, which Masonic rituals being based in Jerusalem, where acacia does grow. But So he injected the acacia into that ritual. So we now know that when Cagliostro and Melisino were using the acacia in a psychedelic context in their degrees, that it wasn't just them inventing something, that... De Sagulier, who inserted it into the ritual, had already been investigating psychedelics along with everybody else in the Royal Society. So what about John Dee? John Dee, he was an Anglo-Welsh mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, teacher, occultist and alchemist. He was the court astronomer for and advisor to Elizabeth I. And he spent much of his time on alchemy, divination and hermetic philosophy. As an antiquarian, he had one of the largest libraries in England at the time. As a political advisor, he advocated for the founding of English colonies in the New World and to form a British Empire, a term he is credited with coining. Terence McKenna, author, psychonaut and a general heretic, was deeply interested in John Dee and Edward Kelly. And rather than me rambling about this fascinating character of history, let's make Terence do that. I'm going to now play a 20-minute talk about John Dee from Terence McKenna. Let's go back to the climate of the 1580s. And the central culprit here, and the, to my mind, a giant figure casting an enormous shadow over the landscape of alchemy and modern science, is uh, the Englishman John Dee. John Dee united in himself the complete spirit of the medieval magus and the complete spirit of the modern scientist. He invented the navigational instruments that allowed the conquest of the round earth. When Francis Drake sailed up the coast of California, he had navigational instruments that were top secret The French, the Spanish, must be kept away from this stuff. And these were navigational instruments created by John Dee that allowed him to locate himself anywhere on the globe. But John Dee was a man who, uh, on a late summer evening in Mortlake, in his house in Mortlake outside London, uh, the angel Gabriel descended into his garden and gave him uh, what he called the show stone, S-H-E-W in Old English, the show stone. And the show stone exists to this day. You can see it in the British Museum. And what's amazing about it is it's a, uh, it's a uh, piece of uh, polished obsidian. It's an Aztec mirror is what it is. 
And, you know, there was a ruler of the Aztecs named Smoky Mirror. How John Dee got this thing, we cannot even imagine. I mean, he says he got it from an angel. Nobody can really nay say that. However, I suspect that Cortez, on his first return to Spain from the New World, he brought a number of objects with him that he had collected in central Mexico. And somehow John Dee got his hands on this thing. And it was for him a... um, a television screen into the Logos, and he used it over a number of years to uh, direct the foreign policy of England. He was uh, the confidant of Queen Elizabeth I, and he also was the most accomplished astrologer in Europe. And he used his ability to cast horoscopes as an entree into all the great houses of Europe, the kings and nobles of Europe. Well, he was functioning as an intelligence agent. He was a spy for the British crown, uh, insinuating himself into these various courtly scenes and then writing back to Elizabeth in ciphers ciphers that had previously only been used for magical purposes. He was sending back data on the strength of military garrisons and the placement of fortifications and this sort of thing. And uh, But th- this was what he was doing in the 1580s. He kept the showstone for a number of years and he didn't seem to be able to make much pra- much progress with it. He had other methods, too. He had wax tables and sigils. and But finally into his life came a very mysterious character named Edward Kelly. And some accounts say that Edward Kelly had no ears, which indicates that he had had his ears removed for being a charlatan and a mountebank. This was a common punishment in the provinces of England. So Edward Kelly was a very dubious character, I think, uh, for one one strong piece of evidence that he was a shady character was John Dee was married to a much younger woman named Anne Dee, who by all accounts was quite a beauty. And uh, after gaining... Um, Dee's confidence as a scryer, uh, uh, the person who could look into the showstone and lay out these scenarios that the angels and the and the entities coming and going in the showstone were putting forth. Uh, Kelly revealed to Dee that the angels had instructed him to uh, hit the hay with Anne, <laughs> and this was a great crisis in their relationship. However, uh, according to Dee's diary, and so. It was done, we read. So, you know, hanky panky didn't begin with the golden dawn, uh, believe me. In 1582, Anne D., John D., and Edward Kelly set out for Bohemia, and Rudolph, the mad king of Bohemia, held sway at that time. Now, this is another one of these bizarre figures in the whole story of this. Rudolf uh, collected dwarfs, he collected giants, he had what was called a wunderkammer, 
a, a, a wonder cabinet. You see, before Linnaeus, before modern scientific classification, these great patrons of the arts and natural sciences, they would just collect weird stuff. And that was all you could say about it. I mean, it was rhinoceros horns, fossil ammonites, uh, broken pieces of statues from antiquity, giant insects from southern India, seashells. All this stuff would just be thrown together in these Wunderkammer, these wonder cabinets. And uh, uh, Rudolf was a great patron of the arts. Well, uh, Kelly sent the word that he and Dee had perfected the alchemical process and uh, Rudolf immediately paid their way to Prague and uh, patronized them very lavishly over a number of months but then uh, they didn't seem to be coming through and he rented, he ordered a castle put at their disposal in Bohemia and they still weren't able to come through. The Vonich manuscript figures in here too because Ke Kelly's entree to D was that he had a manuscript in uh, an unknown language. And I believe that this probably was the Vonich manuscript. The Vonich manuscript turns up in the estate of Rudolf and the very month that he paid 14,000 gold ducats for it to persons unknown, D, who was always writing back to the Elizabethan court, hounding them to send money, entered in his account book that they received 14,000 gold ducats from an unknown source. Uh, D was able to talk himself out of this alchemical imprisonment, but not before he had written a book called The Hieroglyphic Monad. Now, you have to understand the importance of this. As late as the 1920s in England, in, in the better schools of England like Eton, uh, it, when you studied geometry, you studied Euclid's works. And uh, Euclid's geometry was always preceded by Dee's preface to Euclid. Until the 1920s, every English schoolchild studied this. He was a master mathematician as well as all these other things. This was how he was able to uh, uh, produce this, uh, these navigation instruments. So Dee, while imprisoned in Bohemia, wrote a book called The Hieroglyphic Monad in which he proposed to prove through a, th a series of occult theorems that a certain diagram which unfortunately I don't I didn't bring the hieroglyphic monad but it's basically the symbol of you know the symbol of mercury which looks like the symbol for female but you put horns on it and then there were some adumbrations to that by a series of theorems he built up this hieroglyphic monad and he initiated uh, a couple of young men named Johann Andrei and Michael Meyer into the mysteries of the hieroglyphic monad. Well, then he was able to get out of Bohemia, and he went back to England. Kelly, who had made much more extravagant claims, Rudolf kept at work on the alchemical opus, and Kelly became more and more desperate to escape 
And one night in 1587, he crept out on the parapet of this Bohemian castle and uh, a roof tile slipped beneath his feet and he fell to his death and became, so far as I can tell, alchemy's only true martyr. (laughs) Well, Dee returned to England and uh, he was now very old and uh, he died at Mortlake in 1606. Elizabeth died in 1604. Shakespeare was happening. Sir Philip Sidney was happening through this period. John Dee reputedly had over 6,000 books in his library. He had more books than any man in England. He had books, we have a partial catalog of his library. He had books that do not exist now. He had Roger Bacon manuscripts because you see when Henry VIII kicked the Catholic Church out of England the Northumbrian monasteries were looted by the Earl of Northumberland and uh, and basically Dee was allowed to pick over the loot from these monasteries and there were Roger Bacon manuscripts which perished when Dee's library was burned by an angry mob when while he was on the continent because he was suspected of being a wizard. He was the model for Faust uh, in the later recensions of Faust. And whenever you see an old man with a white beard and a pointed cap, this image is really referent to Dee. Well, Elizabeth died in 1604, I believe, and um, James I became king of England. And James was a peculiar character the wags of the time liked to say Elizabeth was king and now James is queen uh, and not only that <laughs> he uh, he hated occultism he had no patience with the whole magical court that Elizabeth had assembled around herself well now meanwhile in 1606 a very mysterious document began to circulate in in Europe and in England called the Fama. This is the first word of a string of Latin words, the Fama, and two years later, the Confessio. And what these were were announcements that an alchemical brotherhood was uh, seeking recruits. It was, these are the primary documents of Rosicrucianism. Now, Rosicrucianism uh, was based on a fiction and a fictional person, Christian Rosencrantz, who was imagined to have lived uh, almost 200 years earlier in the 1540s and been a great alchemist. And it was claimed that his tomb had been recently opened and that there were books inside it which set the stage for the alchemical revolution of the world notice how this occult mind always tries to reach back in time to give itself uh, validity so uh, and Christian Rosencrantz was claimed to be the author of a series of books uh, uh, the chief of which is called the chemical wedding what this was all about I believe, and the Rosicrucian Enlightenment makes it fairly clear, was 
D, during the period when he had been in Bohemia, had set out uh, to lay the groundwork for an alchemical revolution in Central Europe. And he had made Johann Andrei and Michael Meyer his agents in this plot. And it was a plot, a plot to meddle with European history and to turn the Protestant Reformation toward an alchemical completion. They felt that the, that Luther and, and uh, Huss and these people had only gone so far and that the culmination of throwing off the yoke of the church would be the establishment of an alchemical kingdom in Central Europe. The uh, target then of the attention of Michael Meyer and Johann Andrei and a number of these alchemists became the young Frederick, the, he's called Frederick the Elector Palatine. Uh, he was a prince of the Northern League in Germany. He ruled in Heidelberg. And Heidelberg, as you know, is a thousand-year-old university city. And I believe I mentioned that the alchemical press of Theodore de Bry was operating out of Heidelberg. Heidelberg became a magnet for all the occult thinking going on in Europe. And all the puffers and alchemists, the gold makers, the philosophers, the charlatans, they all converged on, uh, on Heidelberg. And uh, Andrei and Meyer were advisors of the young Frederick. And they steered him by a series of political manipulations too complex to tell toward a marriage with the daughter of James I of England, who was named Elizabeth, interestingly enough. So Frederick the Elector made Elizabeth, the son of James of England, his wife. Now, Frederick here made a serious miscalculation because he thought that if James would give his, the hand of his daughter in marriage, that this was his way of blessing this alchemical conspiracy. Actually, what was on James's mind was he was about to give one of his sons in marriage to a Spanish princess of the Habsburg line, a Catholic. In other words, he was playing both sides against each other. He was not giving the green light to an alchemical revolution at all. But um, it was assumed so. Well, then, uh, in, in 1617, 18, Rudolf, remember Rudolf, the emperor? He finally dies at a very ripe old age. And at that time, the Protestant League, which was made up of these princes, of these small principalities scattered across Germany and Poland, they actually elected the emperor. It was not by right of primogeniture, but by election by the, the what was called the Northern League, this group of princes. Frederick and uh, yes, Frederick and his uh, alchemical cohorts had done their political groundwork very, very skillfully, and they were able to engineer the election of Frederick to emperor of the empire. And he became Frederick the Elector Palatine of Bohemia. 
And this set the stage for an episode called uh, the episode of the Winter King and Queen, one of the great... Uh, after Nicholas and Pertinel Flamel, this is one of the great romantic stories of alchemy. If you want to dive deeper into these topics, I suggest you try and find John Dee's The Hieroglyphic Monad or The Alchemical Writings of Edward Kelly. Additionally, I recommend The Complete Enochian Dictionary. Those three books and you'll get quite deep into the rabbit hole. I can't do justice to these topics in a podcast episode, so what I've done so far is just scratch the surface for your benefit. For those of you already well versed in these topics, I hope it wasn't too much of a bore. And those of you new to all of this, I hope you found some of the information in this episode interesting. It's always good to uh, learn new things. If you like this podcast, but want to feast your eyes as well as your ears. Perhaps you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Simply search Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and it shall appear. Or click the link in the program notes of this episode. I put a lot of effort into the videos I make and hopefully you'll enjoy them. If you want to support me, please subscribe on YouTube and even better, Leave a like or a nice comment. YouTube is severely lacking in nice comments. So with your help, let's change that. Anyway, I hope I will see you there. Let's end with Alistair Crowley reading the first call. You know, the one I read at the beginning of this episode. Crowley was an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. He founded the religion of Telema, identifying himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity into the aeon of horse in the early 20th century. The original recording was made around 1920 on a wax cylinder. But before we listen to Alistair Crowley summoning angels Uh, if you like this podcast and want to support it you can do so without spending a single penny share it in social media write a nice review on itunes and if you want to spend a buck or two become a patreon all the links can be found in the program notes freedom is in the mind So brother, the rain, you call mother Dakita, Awesome, Silver, they say to the 
Radio Nasa Mada Wata Hai Ooh. 